Welcome to a new episode of Riada, a Wilson Center podcast about entrepreneurship in the MENA region. I'm Marissa Khurma, your co-host and director of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center. And my co-host is Ahmad Shawa of the Howdy Arabia podcast from Jordan. Our guest today is also from Jordan, Ramuz Sadiq, who is the founder and CEO of Mrayati, or My Mirror in Arabic the Arab world's first specialized mobile beauty salon. Mrayati brings women all types of beauty services to their homes, to their offices, to their gatherings at any time and any place. A very nifty idea from the beauty market. Ramuz, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Marissa, for having me. This is such a pleasure. I've had the chance to listen to some of the podcasts yesterday and I found them so full of insights and I kept nodding. I kept nodding. I'm hearing the guests speak about the challenges, the wins, everything. And I just like, yeah, this is it. This is what we need. Excellent. I'm so glad to hear that. So um, you've listened to all these different stories and today we want you to tell us your story. What is your story? As an entrepreneur, um, how did you come about basically founding Mrayati? Uh Well, such a pleasure to be one of the guests here. Uh, when it comes to Mrayati, I think um, like I'm the child of this age uh, that we're in. I was a corporate kid, you know, living my life, paying my salary, happy about it, traveling the region. And then my friends started building startups. And one of them was like, help me do the marketing strategy for it, please. I'm like, yeah. And that was Abjad, now like raising millions in the region. Uh, later on, I meet uh, Omar Qutsi, and he's just um, recently split with his co-founder, and he's looking for someone technical to lead the product. And I was infected at that point. You know, I was helping so many friends with startups, and I was considering it. And then he came to me, and he's like... Uh, well, Jiran needs a CTO, someone to work on the product. And I was already a huge fan of Jiran. Jiran was back then one of the very few startups raising actual money in the market. Uh, so I left my corporate job. I joined Jiran. And ever since, I never looked back. Um, right, it came later when I realized there is such a gap in the market. Uh, during my work in Jiran, during my travels, I noticed this like, and I thought, you know what? I can fit in something there. I can do something there. That that's um that's really interesting that you said you got infected, I guess, with the um the startup uh virus or whatever it is. Um so um I guess all of these different experiences prepared you for variety. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Totally. Well, uh, during my travels uh, back at my corporate job, I was a regional marketing manager, I was traveling the region. Uh, going to places, promoting my phones. And I was in Syria once and I noticed the barber moving around with his bag. And it was like, oh, today is our day because the barber passes on today. Like, what? The barber comes to you? And I'm like, yeah, since hundreds of years, why would that change? And I came to this notice this is such a norm and such a luxury. And I told him, you know, you're getting VIP service here. And they were like, no, spas are better. You know, you go and have an experience. Like, no, 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 no. You are getting a premium service. The barber is coming to your place. It's such an upgrade. Um, moving on to 2015, everybody was turning to a makeup artist. It was a thing, you know. Girls were leaving university, becoming makeup artists. Uh, older women, younger people. Everybody was a makeup artist. And I thought, 
there must be something to help these people arrange their work or do something better about it. It was still foggy in my head. It wasn't all clear until I've seen the Uber model. And, you know, in 2016, it was like climbing up. Everybody was like, sharing economy, gig economy. And I got excited. I was already, you know, finalizing my work at Shiran, expanding to Egypt. And the idea kept haunting me. I feel like I was chosen by the, by the idea. It wasn't the other way around. I didn't choose this. It chose me. I had to do it. This is how it felt back then. And this is how it went. So we launched Mraiti uh, in January 2017. I still remember the first 10 JDs I made. They were so important to me. And <laughs> I always flex. Like in front of people, I say Mraiti never shut down one day. Like we kept our doors open since January 2017 till this day. And, you know, we're proud to, to have served so many people. And we're even more proud of the pivot that we went through during COVID, uh, which is something very turbulent to us. And it removed us off the map for a while. But now we're back. We're on our feet. And it's such a happy and good place to be. Amazing. Wow, that's such a great concept. Um, Ramuz, <laughs> are you guys also doing product sales uh, on top of the service? What's uh, how, How's the dynamic between those two? Yeah, well, we were lucky to be invested in by Amantic Fund. Uh, back then, I didn't think much of product sales. I will not take credit for it. But my investors were like, Ramuz, you know, salons make 30% of their sales and their profit through products. And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. And now you know. <laughs> So what we did, we started selling out the product as part of the experience. When COVID hit us, it was the lifeline to our startup. Now we sell 70% products and only 30% services. So it was crazy the way things evolved and the way this prepared us for uh, turbulent COVID and lockdowns and changes of behavior within the consumer community. So... Yeah, thanks to our investors, they came in with this idea and we implemented it well. And now products constitute 70% of our revenue. Wow, amazing. Um, yeah, it, it, it is really fascinating how um, COVID came with so many challenges, but it also provided new opportunities. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to, to pivot so uh, successfully. Um, so, Ramuz, when you and I met, we, we discussed so many challenges in the ecosystem. Um, and I, I want to hear a little bit more from you and get, give a chance to our audience to understand what challenges did you face um, yourself with the different initiatives and different projects you're part, but particularly with Mbrayati. Um, And then maybe give us some suggestions as to what needs to be done and who needs to do it. Well, previous guests covered the, the legal aspect where so many startups find themselves operating in a very strange land because they're doing something that nobody ever did before. Yeah. So they're facing challenges that nobody ever did before. And then you, you know, you come in contact with a complex system of government institutes and, um, you know, parties, and each one of them has their own agenda. I know for sure that Modi, for example, they want startups to thrive and do things and hire people. Uh, meanwhile, you have like uh, the Ministry of Labor with a totally different mindset that assumes that you are, um, you know, uh, an owner, which means you're a bad person and you're trying to recruit people for less than the minimum wage or not include them in something or not give them a benefit. 
So you find yourself torn between so many ministries and so many, you know, parts of the government that are not talking to each other at all. So you meet some of them and they complain about the other people. <laughs> so, and to you, it's, well, the government, you don't care, you know, you should, guys, you know, agree on something, come to me with it. But this is not happening. This part was covered extensively. Uh, people also talked about lack of funding, and I would say it's even more severe nowadays. One, because post-COVID world, and two, because most of the funding is going to our neighboring countries. And we've seen the investments like poor somewhere else uh, saying and citing that the market there is bigger, which is you know totally killing our chances at proving it at home and expanding, which was the theory for so many startups. The third challenge, I would say, is the accelerator is trying to give you the same training over and over again. We discussed that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've taken business model canvas training for over 25 times. I can give lectures about business uh, model canvas. So you lack people helping you to actually grow and become. We don't need more training on that aspect. I need more help expanding to other countries. I need access in the United States that helps me for real establish an entity. Or in Saudi Arabia, we need an office there that represents the startup community and is willing to take it there. Instead, what we got was so many Saudi startups approaching us and saying, you know what, come to Saudi, launch in Saudi, try in Saudi first and take this fund and take this grant and become Saudi startup, which is great honestly, for the entrepreneur, but is it great for the ecosystem where only, you know, the people who are not wanted or not eligible enough are left? What kind of ecosystem are we building where, you know, mediocre people stay in and the excellent ones leave to Emirates and Saudi? And you know what? Yeah, sometimes I think about it and I'm like, I wish I launched there first. And this is the advice I give people. Like, go launch big. Do not try in Jordan. Just, you know, try there. If you fail, you fail. Do not try small because the small win will lead you into thinking you have something. Then you'll be stranded without funding, stranded without support, stranded without anything, with only little traction on hand. And I call it the zombie startup. I'm sure you've seen so many zombies. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's such a great point you mentioned, Ramos, about first of all, market size and Jordan. You're selling a tangible thing, service and product. So it's very hard to, to scale. Uh, cross-border. It's not like Saudi Arabia is, uh, has the same system or there's there's so many issues with shipping and customs and labor. Everything is different. So yeah, it's a totally different market. Yeah. We don't even have the road infrastructure to deliver to my consumers. So the moment I hit 2,000 orders in Jordan, no delivery company could serve me. No call center company could serve me. No warehousing company could serve me anymore. And they're like, you're too big and too consuming for us. Wow. Imagine that. And I don't have the funding to buy cars and hire delivery people. But, you know, I have I have what it takes, the customer. But I don't have infrastructure to serve that customer anymore. Wow. Yeah. And, and you mentioned an amazing idea about why don't uh, places like Jordan have uh, like an office in, in a much bigger neighboring market to support and, and discuss and brainstorm with, with local Jordanian startups. How they could how, how they could move to other markets instead of you know doing a lot of networking and training and like you said a lot of startups get approached by Saudis like we we have Columbus, we've been approached every year several times <coughs> with Saudi by Saudi investors because I wasn't willing to actually start a kitchen there and, and locate there and 
do that uh, whole thing. If I was much younger, I might have just not, not anymore. But you're right. It's uh, that's an amazing idea. Maybe something that will lead you uh, or a group of us entrepreneurs uh, to uh, to do at some point. I hope it works for one of us. At least, you know, I'm sure they'll pull the other because we're in such a good ecosystem. People are humble, they're approachable. Nobody would like decline giving you an information or a piece of, or a tip you need or anything. So, but I haven't seen it happen for real since ages. That's true. Uh, Like even with the most successes, you've seen POS Record launch in Egypt, citing market size, but that's not the whole story. And we know it. There, is, there are so many variables other than market size when you launch to um, another country. So, yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope we make. Do you it. feel like your challenges are, uh, or are, uh, yeah, and you're able to uh, overcome them with time in terms of getting into another market, or do you feel like it's you, you really have to uproot and move? What's what? What does the future look? You know, what what can you tell other people in our position? <laughs> the time. I mean, I'm stubborn. I have lots of time on hand to work on variety, like 24 hours a day. Uh, the thing is, time is money. So the more time I take, the more funding I consume because we have a burn rate. And the more time you take without hitting the goal, the less likely investors are to believe your narrative. So people now demand traction, especially from a female founder, let alone a female solo founder. <laughs> So like I, I check every red flag for investors. Solar founder, female, has a child. <laughs> so to them, this is a nightmare. So I need to do real traction. I need to deliver real results on the ground. And real results require funding. And then you go into this infinite loop of trying to make it happen. Uh, luckily, alhamdulillah, we do 7% of our sales now in Saudi, even without having the kitchen there. So I'm trying to, you know, sneak my way in and make it happen like on a larger scale this year. Uh, hopefully in autumn when everybody's back from their vacations, uh, because you know they vacation outside of Saudi and so on. So let's see how that goes. So um, you mentioned that you know you have all these red flags because you're particularly um, um, a woman um, entrepreneur and you're a working mom. Um, have you had the chance throughout all the different interactions with? Um, you know, basically the incubators and the trainings that you've been through to voice this. And did you, did you get any feedback um, about this type of, um, these attitudes essentially uh, vis-a-vis women entrepreneurs? What can be done? Well, there's a short answer and a long answer. Which one would you like? A long one, of course. All right. So on the surface, people say this is about bias. We need to fund more women. On the surface, they say when there are more women investing, they will, you will see more women as entrepreneurs. You will hear all of these things. But in reality, and the reality of minorities everywhere, is that you have to overachieve so that you are treated as a leader. This is the reality of things everywhere. It's not about me in the Arab world or me being a woman. I could be you know, from uh, other ethnicity or another minority, and then I'll have to overwork to prove that I deserve to be in this place with these people. So this is the reality of things for minorities. Luckily, I've been the person who's like always overachieving, you know, first on class, you know, the best in university, the first to be recruited, the highest evaluated in the corporate world. So to me, I knew 
I was getting, you know, that preferential treatment because I'm excellent and because they want to say, we have women entrepreneurs. I know you have women entrepreneurs, but do you have the average woman entrepreneur? Are you inclusive of all the women entrepreneurs at the same level of the males? Or do you bring Rumuz on to say, you know what? We have women entrepreneurs. Yeah, a person who's a workaholic works 20 hours out of 24 hours, has bags under her eyes, and is always stressed. So this is the reality of things. More women in the investing uh, part has done no real investing so far. I mean, aside from training and mentorship, which is always offered to me as a woman entrepreneur because they assume I need it, I've really received nothing from female investors. And female investors are too scared to invest. Look at them across the region. Name one female investor who made a $1 million investment. There is none of them. They write small checks with 10Ks and 20Ks plus in-kind services, and they're happy with the paychecks their LPs give them to manage the fund. This is the reality of things. Why? Well, but if you look at it, yeah, there are so many women entrepreneurs, so many women-founded startups within Oasis, within whatever, but how many of them are zombies? Let's ask the real questions, not the vanity metrics. I meet so many male founders and they're like, you're getting all the support. I'm like, I'll happily give you the training that I'm receiving. <laughs> I'll happily give it away. Give me the funding you're receiving. Mm-hmm. So why do you think women investors are not really putting in their money? You know, they're like that million or half a million. Uh, first of all, they don't have it. That's for sure. <laughs> Women-led uh, VC companies have less money than men-led VC companies. So this whole bias thing trickles down on us, on all of us. And what happens with most of them, sadly, they, they made it after so many hardships. It made them unkind. It made them less likely to appreciate another woman founder unless she kills herself in the process, you know, dies for the mission, dies for the job, clearly has no life, and is so rigid. I recall being explicitly criticized for wearing skirts or having makeup on. Because when do you have time to put this makeup on? When do you have time to wear that strapless dress? You know, you might be trying to suggest to investors that you want this money through other ways. So they assume I must go through hell the same way they did to give me that money. Well, guess what? I already am in hell. I'm running a startup (laughs) in Jordan. I don't need to go through more hardship. So that's the case. I mean, it's sad. It's not like I blame them, but I feel sad for them that they arrived, but they arrived torn. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Too poetic, huh? Yeah, it's very deep and very uh, sobering. Um, almost. I speak of this often, yeah. honestly. I mean, I sit down and think a lot because I try to make the journey mindful and meaningful yeah. and honorable. Yeah. So I try to fall into these traps because when I see someone doing something, I really need to understand why. Have you seen a difference with uh, non-Jordanian or non-Arab women-led VC or investor vehicles? Totally, totally. I mean, I've been uh, to Wumina. Uh, Elisa Preha has done a marvelous job. She thought of every little detail. And back then when I took that training, I really needed that training. It came at the right moment. Uh, I remember like I had an Excel fright, you know, I was phobic. Whenever you show me a huge projection sheet, I'll I'll start shaking. (laughs) I'm a marketeer with, you know, computer science background. I'm not into Excel sheets or finances. 
But I left that program really, really like I was so in control of my projections. Now I do like the biggest Excel sheets, the biggest projections. I understand every little detail. The trainings were not shallow. She she paid for these trainings from her own pocket. It wasn't a grant from, uh, you know, somewhere where you had to cross doing things so that you get the money and get paid. She actually wanted us to learn. And that intention manifested in the type of trainings that we got, manifested in the locations she chose, manifested in the caliber of entrepreneurs I had around me. It wasn't just another program where people make money out of the program. There is more business in the ecosystem than there is business in the ecosystem. (laughs) People are making more money out of entrepreneurs than entrepreneurs are making out of their own business. Interesting. And and that is because many of these trainings are provided by um, basically donor agencies. Um, you don't see too many um, homegrown or local ones. Is that what it is? I mean, everybody's complacent. Let's face it. When you have failed to exit your startup, when you don't have enough cash flow, when you have experience in the field, and then you hear that, for example, USAID is launching a grant program to upskill entrepreneurs. You go, you create that uh, program on paper, you present it, you get the grant. Now you're trying to do the outreach and bring the founders on. And the list goes on. There is no continuity. There is, I mean, I know USAID has the best intentions. I know for a fact because I've seen them, I've sat down with them. And when they heard my feedback, they were like, no, this is not what we wanted. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, sometimes this is the whole phenomenon. When you're trying to fix something, then you ruin something else, and you create a whole bunch of scavengers who are about making money from entrepreneur support programs. Mm, yeah. Yeah, those are the um, unintended consequences, I guess, yeah. uh, that we often see as a result of... Um... I think so many people will hate me after this podcast. <laughs> No, I think I think you bring a lot of um, uh, great ideas and suggestions, um, and that's why we invited you. Yeah, so, I'm loving it. <laughs> uh, thank you. Don't don't hold back. Yeah, um, seriously, don't hold back. Uh, I'm, I'm learning uh, a lot, actually, and I'm excited. To, I'm, oh, I wish you. it was a, even a longer episode. I'll get in touch with you later. I want to ask you, what would you say is the number one reason you're you're not selling more than 7% in Saudi. Just, uh, just just for the other entrepreneurs out there, because Saudi is one of the main targets for literally every e-commerce startup in Jordan. Yes, totally. I mean, Saudi is a big market. It's lucrative. It's beautiful. But you know, you need to pay for it. Advertising money there means nothing because you need to spend like 100x, not just 10x. And this is something we don't pay them as Jordanians. Like, we don't get it. What do you mean? $15 for a customer. I pay $3 in charge. So to them, it's ludicrous. Uh, Saudi requires a different state of mindset. Uh, and we're learning that. I mean, we just recently uh, summoned our guts and decided, you know, to man up and start selling there, a woman up, uh, quote unquote, and start selling there, start advertising there, and start watching what happens. So we, we really were too scared of that market. Whatever money we threw in it was insignificant. So you need to get creative. You need to understand whatever, you know, people were, were told, and this is a lie, please. If you make it in Jordan, you can make it anywhere. This is a lie. Do not believe that. Actually, if you make it in Jordan, you only made it because you learned survivalism. 
you, when you need to make it in Saudi, you need to think big. You need to think growth. You need to think prosperity. You need to come from a different state of mind with abundance. You don't need to think scarcity like Jordan to survive. So your state of mind and whatever you learned in Jordan, you need to unlearn, then go to Saudi. Wow. So if you make it in Jordan or in Egypt or in Tunis, I meet so many founders telling me, if I make it in Egypt, I can be, no, you cannot make it anywhere. And then I started sending Batman, Batman slapping Robin meme to them. No, you're not going to make it anywhere if you make it in a, you know, hard market. <laughs> well, at least Ramuz, like the, the silver lining of what you're saying is that you're learning, you know, survivalism. And those are very important skills. Um, uh, you know, with, for any market, for 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 any um, endeavor. Um, so we're running out of time. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you the a wrap up question. Um, you you have tremendous experience. You've been through a lot um, throughout this entrepreneurial journey. And um, what what advice do you have um, for young ones who also want to start their own? Um, you know, enterprises and projects and maybe are a little bit hesitant, particularly young women? Well, um, four things. The first one, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You will not exit in a year or two or three. You need to know it's a marathon and you need to have, you know, the stamina to run that marathon. Second thing, make the journey honorable. If you are like, if it's an honorable journey, you will regret nothing. Even if you fail, you know you've done everybody justice and yourself and the market and your investors. Make it honorable. Do not do into like, I'm a smart ass person. I'll do this and that. Um, third thing is the weakest ink is stronger than the strongest memory. Uh, write things down. Do things in contracts. Do not assume shaking hands with people means anything. Do not be scared of lawyers. Lawyers are your best friends. Really go to them, ask for their consultation and make it legal and good. And the fourth and the final thing is that regardless of the result, if you learned something, if the journey was really meaningful to you, and you came out with something of it, it's not the end. Do not fear failure. Women and overachieving women fear failure. They dread it. To them, it's like death. Do not fear. Failure is, failure is how you know what didn't work, and then you jump to the next thing. Thomas Edison failed so many times. I think it was like 900 times before making it. And we are allowed to fail, you know, nine times before we just jump into the thing that actually works. And that's pretty much it. Amazing. And that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Ramuz, for sharing your story um, and your ideas and for your time. And we will um, talk to you soon and continue the discussion on all things entrepreneurship. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ramuz. It was amazing. Good luck. Thank you, Emma. This podcast is funded by a grant from the United States Department of State. The opinions, findings, and conclusions of this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State. Mm -hmm.